when we talk about what whiteness is, it is kind of um, buying into those assumptions about human superiority, right? So we don't say that, you know, because your skin is lighter than mine, you're bad. Like that's not what we're talking about when we talk about whiteness. We're talking about the ideas that colonizers, slaveholders, all of them, that they came, theologians, philosophers, um, even scientists, you know, back in the day, were coming up with all of these discourses to justify the oppression of Black people and the intentional uh, structural uh, privileging, which is not a word, but we're going to go with it. I like it. Uh, <laughs> privileging <laughs> of European people and European descended people, specifically those of, 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 of wealth, right? Builders whizzing by in the night, street signs, street lines, turning the light beams, yeah, hyperdrive, yeah, the only whip on the road, on our way home, smelling like sweat and cologne, singing along to the radio, high on some mystery, we just Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for downloading. I'm glad that you're here. So a couple quick announcements. It's been a while since I did an announcement, right? Yeah, why not? First announcement is that I have partnered with bookshop.org. That is a online company to kind of compete against the behemoth that is Amazon. What it does is it allows you to buy a book, support an artist, and also at the same time, hopefully support a local bookstore where you happen to live. If you go there now, you will find Andre Henry's book. You'll find Robin Henderson Espinosa's book. You'll find many of the other books that have been featured recently in the last few months on the show right there. You can click on that link. It will support the show a little bit, but more importantly, it will support the authors of these books. Second announcement. It's been a long time since I had any new music in the episodes, and partly that is just because I am so busy, it's hard to track down new music so often. However, the guest today is a musician as well, and with his blessing, you will hear Andre's music mixed throughout this episode, and so I wanted to say that up front, that you are hearing that now. Let's rock and roll. Welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast, man. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You don't know this, but I've stalked you on the internet for many, many years. Um, oh, you're a very good stalker because I did not realize that. I don't comment. <laughs> I don't comment on anything. Um, I just try to learn. Um, I try to learn how to shut my mouth on the internet and just, and just read. But no, um, a thank you, though, for your Facebook. So in the middle of the pandemic, I was an essential worker 
And one of the things that was my joy for about two weeks was when you were just like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to, if you want to listen, I'm just going to DJ some music. And you were my drive home for like, I don't know, like two weeks or something. And then I think probably Facebook or music licensing rights or something said, yeah, you're done playing music. Yeah. But, um, thank you for that. Um, yeah. Oh, it's my pleasure. Like, I mean, I really, I love DJing. It's one of my favorite things in the world. Mm -hmm. And just to be able to kind of show up while we were all, I mean, that was a scary time, right? Like it's pretty really unpredictable just to be able to kind of show up and share some music. I, um, I work at a bank and so we weren't, the banks aren't legally allowed to shut down more than two days. Like that's Mm -hmm. like, it's like, you can't do that. Um, which is why they're open on Saturdays because there are federal holidays on Mondays. So, um, so I just hated life. <laughs> um, I forget where I was in front of a Best Buy driving home and I'm like, what is this? Yes. Give me this. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so thank you again for that. Um, so when you, when you try to tell people like what an Andre Henry, Henry, <laughs> what an Andre is, what is that? Like, what's the answer to that? Yeah. Um, I would tell people that I am a singer-songwriter or musician, however you want to say that. Sometimes I add author-activists, but they all are part of the same work to me, you know? Fair enough. What's the difference between a singer-songwriter and a musician? Well, one is just more specific, right? Because if I say musician, it's like, okay, well, do you play the harp? <laughs> you know, like, I don't, what, is that, what does that mean, right? Um, so sometimes I'm just more specific so people understand you yeah. know, a little bit more of what that looks like for me. <laughs> yeah, I play a five-string banjo and a harp, and that's it. That's it. If you can't play those, you don't, you don't count. Yeah. yeah. I'm an expert at the spoons, you know? like that's... I, I cannot play the spoons. I've no. tried many a time. Yeah, yeah, I'm joking. I'm joking, but that's what I. That's why I um, sometimes make that distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. So, can I say um, I have carried your book around with me? I don't know since your publisher sent it to me. So, if they're listening, thanks for sending that. Or if it wasn't you, but maybe it was your with your permission. Either way, mm-hmm. don't care. Um, <laughs> and I have enjoyed. Um, living in and around and working in Charlottesville, uh, the look on people's oh, wow. faces as I'll sit here and do this job, you know, Just on the, on the lunch break. Well, I'm, I'm actually reading it, though. Um, so, so just addressing the elephant in the room, because I have been doing this on your behalf for, like, mm-hmm. weeks as I read through this book, especially, like, leaving it at work on the break table, mm-hmm. just sitting there, like, nobody, don't steal my book, but flip through it if you want. Um, what is this? Like, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I have read the whole books. I'm aware of what it is. But <laughs> it's a funny question. I love the way you asked that question. All right, man. Just <laughs> um, I mean, it's a good question, though, because from the title, I think that it is misleading. And I don't mind it being a little bit misleading about what people are going to get when they pick up this book. So this book is really a it's uh it's like a manual around civil resistance it's like what you need to know about taking practical action against systemic racism Mm -hmm. but it is in the frame of a memoir Mm -hmm. okay so it's like a it's a little bit of memoir it's a little bit manifesto 
And uh, every chapter, I tell a story from my own life, my own journey of political awakening, my own uh, journey into learning about nonviolent struggle, and me looking for my place in the struggle for black liberation to illuminate some principle about social progress that we've probably not been taught, Mm. you know, or we probably haven't heard of in the dominant common sense around how social progress happens. Mm. Yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, it is uh, the way that I have described it um, to people uh, in my own words is, uh, it's a story about the realization that it's not my job to make you understand things that bother me, mm-hmm. but you should probably ask about them. Mm-hmm. That's how I've been explaining it. I don't know if that's a good paraphrase or not, but that's what I've been telling people. Um, sure. I don't know. Maybe it's wrong. Doesn't matter because <laughs> um, it's what I think, and that's that's you know that's 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 relativism. That's that's where we live. Um, uh. <laughs> so <laughs> you use the word apocalyptic quite a bit throughout the book. Um, And I think when people hear that word, you know, we get some prosperity gospel preachers, we get some Benny Hinn, um, Mm -hmm. uh, some Bethel music mixed in, you know, Uh with the way that, you know, Jesus is coming soon and let's, let's do this thing. What, how are you using the word apocalyptic? Because I think it kind of changes the lens for the entire text. For sure. Yeah. I use apocalypse in a way that I feel is more faithful to the folks who first used that word in uh, the first century. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the word, the Greek word apocalypsos means to unveil or to reveal. And the most famous of those, um, it was a, you know, deeply political genre back in the day. And, um, you know, the, the writers of these apocalypses wanted to say something about society and about the way that power is being used in society in a way that probably kept them safe from being uh, persecuted for, for that. Um, and in a way that evoked images of liberation that their audiences would have been familiar with, like in the most famous apocalypse that we know of, the book of Revelation in the Bible. Um, The writer, John, a political prisoner in Rome, uh, evokes all this imagery from the Exodus story and Mm -hmm. from Daniel and all these things to kind of paint a political cartoon of Caesar and the Roman Empire. Um, In 2016, I compared the book of Revelation to these random uh, statues of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton naked in New York City that randomly popped up. I don't know if you remember that in the news, but like some some artists randomly. It was you. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. The cat's out the bag. It was not me. I didn't. I'm not going to take credit for it, but but it's fun to pretend Um, that. So this artist made, you know, these these figures of Donald of Donald Trump, I think, was the first one. And I think that Donald Trump's uh, manhood was very small in that uh, (laughs) sculpture. And I think the artist did that for a reason, like to, you know, get us to talk about what that might mean. But anyway, I feel like John is doing a similar thing to that in the way that John is uh, painting the Roman Empire and Caesar in the book of Revelation. And he's doing that because his neighbors who are subjugated people, people who live under the subjugation of the violent uh, empire of Rome are actually starting to worship Caesar. And he, he writes this apocalypse as an intervention against that. And um, 
just a couple things I want to add. A couple things I want to add there is not only does he unveil the monstrous nature of the Roman Empire, he also paints this vision of a world that could be without those types of systems. And many people, you know, we talk about how like this was probably written to response to a lot of uh, to Christian persecution, right? To Christians being persecuted in the first century. Uh, there's some historians that you know they they argue that. Christians were, were not facing wide, wide, that widespread persecution or severe persecution at that time. But regardless, there's only one person named in the book of Revelation that's been killed, the Antipas. And so in my imagination, sometimes I wonder if in, in a similar way that, you know, black people like myself watched the news, saw people like ourselves dying, being killed, all this sort of kind of stuff, and it spurred this moment, if, if the murder of this one man, Antipas, was enough to uh, provoke John's imagination to say deaths like these are an indictment on the entire system. It's emblematic of something more. Yeah. And to say the only way to respond to this is for us to dismantle systems like these and to imagine an entirely new world. Yeah. I'm kind of hoping that my book does a similar kind of work for black people who find themselves also like very much operating unknowingly unwittingly uh under the spell of uh, america's you know version of pax romana you know america's mm. self-portrait of itself where we have been so subjugated that we also believe that we are a part of uh that we're a part of this anti-black society in a way that we just can't participate and mm. i mentioned in the first chapter which i know i'm taking a really long time on this question but this last thing <laughs> The whole house is asleep. The floor is yours. <laughs> um, that, you know, support for Donald Trump, for instance, went up among black and Latino males between 2016 and 2020. Yeah. Right. Apoc apocalypses are meant to disrupt that kind of dynamic where subjugated people are like their oppressors biggest fans. Yeah. Yeah, leaning into unveiling a little bit more. And I feel like, mm -hmm. I forget what po what podcast it was, or maybe it was a book, I don't know. I've read a lot of crap, and I have no idea what's my own thoughts anymore. I don't know if you ever struggle with <laughs> Like, I literally yeah. have no, I'm like, I feel like that's original. But yeah. I probably stole that. Um, yeah. Matter of fact, I told my wife, I was like, if I ever write a book or anything, it's going to be like a thing at the beginning. I'm like, if I missed an attribution, at, at trip, I don't know how that word works. If I, I missed it, yeah. yeah, that's it. Um <laughs> Please email me and we'll do the Kindle version and we'll we'll, we'll edit it in as we go because I'm pretty sure that I stole every single one of these words. I get where you're coming from. So uh, when things are being unveiled, specifically with racism, and, and I can say you were talking about like reading the book from a lens of a black person, um, mm -hmm. which for those watching the video, um, I am not a um, a black person. I'm <laughs> bald, mostly white person. Um, and so with that, um, unveiling, I think, is both systemic, but it's also deeply personal. And yeah. so what does that kind of look like for folks, whether or not they're reading the book? And, and to be clear, we're just going to time out right here. I read your book twice. Like, I, like one time I read it in yeah. one sitting, and then I mm -hmm. took it with me to Tennessee on vacation over the last week. And I read it again intentionally while my, my kid's out there fishing and playing with the kids, you know, just mm -hmm. slowly reading it. Um, but unveiling is different because like I, I see myself in many of the stories of the people like I see myself in Kevin. Um, oh. I see myself in um, your adoptive family, not adoptive, yeah. but um, 
yeah. it's chapter three or chapter two or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. uh, especially when Facebook memories pop up and yeah. I'm like, oh, damn, did I say that? Holy <laughs> hell, there's, I don't even, like, I don't even recognize the person that I was. Yeah. Um, but that's yeah. a different kind of unveiling. So mm-hmm. how do we separate out um, unveiling of those structures, this, the systemic structures, both mm-hmm. at, a, at a personal level versus the, the grander macro level? You know, I don't think that we need to separate them because they are connected. And that's a huge part of the chapter about the personal and the political. And that's why, like, I think to many people's surprise, like I start telling you this story in the beginning and I'm like, when I was a kid, this was my biggest fear. And by the end of that chapter, I'm talking about the rise of global fascism, right? Like (laughs) covered a lot of ground (laughs) there. That's the intro. Um, The they they are connected in a in a very deep way and there is a way in which okay so france fanon a revolutionary philosopher writer psychotherapist who inspired the work um in many ways or influenced the thinking of malcolm x and the black panthers and and so on in one of his books he writes about how the struggle for liberation it transforms those who are participating in it you know on a personal level and also influencing the the oppressed as a group, changes the values, changes culture. And so I think that's just a nature of um, not just those who are struggling for liberation, but basically what I'm saying is those macro things, they shape us individually. They shape the way that we think, right? Mm -hmm. And a part of that waking up, that unveiling, is we discover the ways that we have been formed and shaped by that domination system and the ways that we were trained to support it and to participate in it, in it unthinkingly. And then, yeah, you and I will probably look at, I mean, our Facebook memories and say, oh, my mm. gosh, like I used to think that way. I used to say those kinds of things. Mm. I really believe that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you delete them? I started deleting them and then I stopped because <laughs> I was like, no, these need to stay there. I don't know. What do you, what, um, what do, you do? I... So I, I haven't seen anything like super like, you know, like mm. problematic, you know, there's, yeah. there's no pictures of me in like a clan robe or anything like that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't mean pictures, like just words. So I grew up just for some context, like ultra, ultra conservative yeah. in Southwest Texas. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, um, there's a lot that you could wrap into like picture Ted Cruz, but a Ted Cruz that's willing to admit that my name is Raphael, you know, like, uh, like in it. Um, instead of trying to disembody from that. So like some of the stuff I used to say, oh, oh. I mean, there's some things that I just feel like, okay, there's, there may come a time where someone finds an old sermon of mine and is like, man, Andre, you really were like pretty patriarchal in that sermon. I'm going to be like, yeah, yeah. That's what I thought then. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've I've grown, I've changed. (laughs) Um, I've, I've theosist. Um, yeah, for we'll, we'll stick with the Greek words. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So gaslighting is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Um, and I don't think it's a word that a lot of people understand the meaning of, um, yeah. because I feel like a lot of people throw in gaslighting when they feel like they've lost the point and they're mm-hmm. like, well, now I just want to take ownership of this. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. which I could, I've also thought about kind of possibly gaslighting those old Facebook memories and just like making it be, be like memes about Taco Bell, but not editing any comments <laughs> so that when people, and then resharing it. Um, so, <laughs> so what, just at a, at a high level, what is gaslighting and how does it relate 
to kind of systemic racism and the systems that we live in, you and I? Yeah, so gaslighting is an abuse tactic where the abuser is trying to get the target to, well, basically trying to undermine the target's perception of reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems like the ultimate goal is really to get the target to accept the abuser's version of the story, whatever that is. comes Mm -hmm. from a, a play from the 1930s where a man was doing this to his wife. Uh, playing, messing around with her gas-powered lights and telling her they're only flickering in her head. Um, And this happens around many social justice issues, issues of power. But when it comes to racism, um, there there is this thing that happens in in the white world. And by the white world, I mean uh, those nations that were built through uh, European colonialism, you Mm -hmm. know, um, and and that used uh, anti-black violence, which is a a very, you know, I guess, abstract way of me saying enslavement, the breaking of black bodies to build their societies by trying to cover up that information. I use the example of me growing up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, where the Ku Klux Klan was reborn and going to Stone Mountain Park as a kid, and there being no mention of the Klan's ties to Stone Mountain Park. Someone listening might be like, what Klan ties to Stone Mountain Park? Well, I'll tell you, yeah. that is where the Ku Klux Klan was reborn. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, um, when I read that chapter, um, I we had recently learned about we. I did not learn about Stone Mountain growing up in Texas, um, because Texas is a big enough state that the history book is whatever we say it is, and McGraw-Hill's just going to make it so. So mm-hmm. you're welcome, America. The Texans, uh, Texas writes a lot of the history. Regard- so yeah. I didn't know anything about it um, mm-hmm. until I was helping my son in his seventh grade ma- uh, history class, and they were talking about it. But they didn't talk about any of this stuff. Like The stuff about that that you're about to say, um, your book's the first time I read it, and I was like, I f- wow. I, I, like, I've... <laughs> Like, yeah, like I, mean, I went to school at Liberty, another fun, that's fun. Um, <laughs> like I would ride out to Appomattox and learn all about Lee surrendering out there and like yeah. VMI and uh, Robert, Lee, Robert E. Lee are like buried down where Stonewall Jackson is buried, like just down the street in Lexington. Like right. I was like, I, why did I not know any of this? But anyway, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, but that and that's exactly a part of my point is that I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and I never heard mm. that the Ku Klux Klan was reborn on that rock that I hiked. I hiked up that rock, you know, several times. It's a know, nice hike. In my life. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a decent <laughs> walk. You know what I'm saying? And there's a huge Confederate, mo- the largest Confederate monument uh, in the country and the largest bass relief carving in the world is on that rock. And it is a depiction of Stonewall Jackson, General Lee, and Jefferson Davis on horseback, you know, um, majestically looking into their futures, I suppose. Um, but this, <laughs> this, this carving was the idea of Klan sympathizers and the idea for the original design was to have just General Lee and a parade of Klansmen. That was the original idea. And the only reason that it wasn't that is because the designer felt like it was beneath his talents to do. Not He was not morally a Opposed to it. He Isn't it the same like, guy that did Mount Rushmore, though? Exactly. Yes. He's the same guy who did Mount Rushmore. <laughs> and he was That's like. That's not in the book. I don't remember reading that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he, de- he, he wanted to 
he wanted to do something with more pizzazz, basically. <laughs> and that was that was his idea, was that I would do this Confederate generals. So anyway, I talk about gaslighting on a systemic level because let's bring it back down to the personal and then go back up. On the personal level, some tactics of gaslighting include like lying, deflecting, projecting, hiding information, minimizing people's, minimizing someone's uh, feelings when they try to tell you about it. And so all right, back, up to the, back up to the macro level, they're literally revising textbooks, hiding information, mm. you know, neglecting and, and lying about the civil, the, the cause of the civil war. That's wh- why these, this type of iconography emerged in the first place was to, was to reframe uh, the, the motivation behind the civil war to say that this was not about, you know, keeping slavery, you mm. know, as a, as a no, practice. It's, it's states rights, you know, it's, yeah, def- it's absolutely. States rights. It's a legitimate, <laughs> this was a legitimate uprising against, you know, uh, a big government, you know, federal, mm. federal overreach, all that kind of thing. <laughs> and this type of gaslighting is continuing today with the book bannings and the book burnings and the demonizing of CRT, of critical race theory and mislabeling all kinds of things, uh, critical race theory, because this is a huge, well, this is a, a favorite tactic, I should say, of the white power structure is to say racism is not a problem here. I'm skipping around in your chapters. Am I allowed to, can I quote your own book back to you? Is that, is that a thing that we're allowed to do? Okay. Um, so there is a chapter, I don't know what chapter it is. It's We Can All Be White is the name of the chapter, um, which did reframe some things for me. Um, and you quote someone in here, uh, is it Willie, Willie James Jennings? Willie Jennings, uh, Is yeah. talking about the fusion of white identity and Christianity had been an essential part of the evolution of patriarchy, racism, and the climate crisis when he liberated himself from his notes for a moment. And he says, anyone can be white friends. And then you go on to say a little bit more about that, but you put Mm -hmm. in here, he continued, no one is born white. There's no white biology. Uh, Whiteness, he explained, is a way of thinking and being in the world, Um, which that's not the way I think most people operate in the world. And I think that may be new information for many people listening um, Mm -hmm. or that have not read Willie James Jennings. Um, I have not read that book, um, but I was challenged by um, Professor Sung Chong Ra a few years ago to only buy books from people for a while that were not people that look like me, um, which has shattered my view of the world in a good way um, and in, in the best ways. But what are you, I guess, and Willie getting at there? Yeah, and I would also say that many black writers have made this point. Malcolm X, James Baldwin, and others, you know, have made this this point as well that race can be a very complex con- conversation to have because usually when we start talking about racism, what people say is, "Oh, I don't care about skin color," and it's like, yeah, skin color is a part of the conversation about race, but it's not actually the that's that is actually not the way that you can wrap the whole thing up in a bow, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it can't be contained in that one thing. It's not just about skin color. Really, racism is about human hierarchy, if we want to make it a little bit more abstract, right? And we can take, and basically that human hierarchy became, in a sense, color-coded, right? Mm -hmm. To where whiteness became conflated with humanity, right? But when we talk about what whiteness is, it is kind of um, buying into those assumptions about human superiority, Right. So we don't say that, you know, because your skin is lighter than mine, you're bad. Like that's not what we're talking about when we talk about whiteness. We're talking about 
the ideas that colonizers, slaveholders, all of them, that they came, theologians, philosophers, um, even scientists, you know, back in the day, were coming up with all of these discourses to justify the oppression of Black people and the intentional uh, structural uh, privileging, which is not a word, but we're going to go with it. I like it. Uh, <laughs> privileging. <laughs> of European people and European descended people, specifically those of, 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 of wealth, right? It's hard for me to explain. And I'm, I'm so glad that like I have the book so I can just say, all right, read that chapter because mm -hmm. I did, I did, I had a lot more time to like really hammer that out there. Chapter six, so, I cheated. Yes. <laughs> so, but when we're talking about whiteness, we're talking about that. It is the, these, those lies that have been passed down about the superiority of those people who descend from that, who, who live in that caste, rather, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And um, operating under those assumptions that, for instance, like the blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman is the standard of beauty and classical music is the, um, is the best form, the most sophisticated form of music out there, mm -hmm. and uh, English is inherently a more intelligible and refined language than... Well, that's African absolutely untrue. That English is, is like the worst language. Right. It is the hardest to right. learn. It's ridiculous. Right. And, and European, you know, uh, traditions of Christianity are more spiritually val valid than indigenous spiritualities and all that kind of stuff. All mm -hmm. of these things are, they, they seem kind of like subtle forms of white supremacy when I'm just saying them with words. But when you think about the violence that has been done, uh, and and justified by those lies, then you then I think you really start to see um, kind of the contours of whiteness that I'm talking about. And to your to the question, you know, I think that the title of that chapter raises it's like when we say when I say that you know anyone can be white, anyone can agree with these tenets, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to have light skin to believe that blonde-haired, blue-eyed, fair-skinned women are inherently more beautiful than dark-skinned, kinky-haired, brown-eyed women, right? <laughs> you don't have to be, you don't have to have light skin to believe that John Calvin is uh, inherently more uh, in tune with spiritual truth than- um, Only five of them. Nat Turner, yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> You know, and so on and so forth. So anyone can kind of believe that they are white. However, <laughs> not everyone can be identified as white because yeah. that's where we get back to the color coded thing. So you can be a black person, a Mexican person, a, a an Asian American person, and you can ascribe to all of these ideas about white superiority. But when the police stop you, when they pull you over in a traffic stop, you know, then we'll see how white you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why, it, why do you find, or why do you, th so you've had more of the, so I am privileged enough that I don't have to deal with the rough conversations that you've ripped apart in all of these chapters. Like I just, I inherently get a pass because I, I just do. Um, it doesn't make it right. It just makes it a lot easier, um, mm -hmm. which means I have to choose uncomfortable situations for growth. Um, mm -hmm. instead of ambivalence and, and apathy. Um, why is the power that comes with that privilege so seductive 
to people regardless of the melanin count in their skin? Yeah. Well, I think that you've already hinted at it is that it's, it's dangerous because um, you can passively support the, this domination system, this violent status quo, literally just by excusing yourself from the conversation. Mm. You know, one thing that I say to people is that um, I say all the time is that history is not a story that's happening to us. It's one that we're writing together Mm. and we write it through collective action. Um, But we are so essential to that story that when we choose not to act, that also becomes a part of the narrative that becomes a part of the story that becomes a part of history. And we know this because when we look back at some of the big atrocities in, in the world, we always ask the question, well, what, well, what was everybody else doing, mm. right? Mm. We know that the majority, you know, um, we know that there were a bunch of people, you know, living in uh, Nazi Germany that were not actively shoving people into, you know, gas chambers and things like that. Mm-hmm. But what were the people who were opposed to that doing? You know, we ask that question and we ask that question because we inherently know that just because you did not act does not mean mm-hmm. that you are not complicit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because what you were doing was I don't I didn't see it. I didn't see it as I right. really like my stuff. I, mm-hmm. didn't, I didn't see it. And I don't you know, right. I, I like my stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Do you remember like last year I had all those weird ad breaks, like it would just randomly be something? We're not doing that. Instead, I thought I'd do this. I need your help if you're able to. Head on over to the website for the show. There are two things that you can do. One is you head over to the website, you click the Patreon button or support button, I forget what I call it, and you jump in there. Those people help make the show a thing so that you can listen to it right now. Two, the easier one, you could just leave a rating and a review on the podcast app of choice that you currently use. Either one of those is fine, but I would love it if you would do either one, specifically the rating and reviewing. It's an exponential thing that the algorithms pick it up and that's just math. It's just compounding on top of itself. Anyway, all that to say, that was it. That was the ad break. And now we're gonna get back into it. So I'm not going to ask you to retell the story of um, of dinner and a stone because I'm certain just reading through that chapter, I alluded to earlier, I haven't listened to any of the episodes that you've been on, but it is a, a different enough thing um, for, for people that I can't think that you haven't been asked about that. And so I don't want you to retell that story. And for yeah. people that are like, why is he being so vague? Buy the damn book. Um, so there's that. But it is a wonderful story. But I am curious about like the voice and the role of prophecy in people's lives today, regardless of their connectedness to a local church. Yeah. Um, and then I have another question after, um, because I thought about this question driving home from vacation. Um, but what is kind of the role of that? And, and, and also, I guess, how do you respond to it? You know, you know, this is a 
I'll, I'll be really honest about this. Like, so when we talk about that, um, that experience, you know, people do talk of, they, they compare it to kind of like a prophetic call narrative from, you know, scripture or something like that. And, mm-hmm. um, I am super uncomfortable, like with, you know, the idea of like me standing in that tradition, um, with other people who do sometimes, you know, either say, okay, Andre is prophetic or Andre is a prophet. And um, I think for good reason, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I grew up in the Sims of God. I know how weird people can be, you know, mm-hmm. about stuff like that. I think what makes me feel more comfortable with sharing that stuff in the book is the fact that like, I had no idea what I believed about God. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and I had no idea what I believed about spirituality and I had this weird mystical experience and felt like I was supposed to do it. And I did. So I, I don't, I don't come out as like, look at me, mighty man of faith and power, you know, with divine secrets or something like yeah. that. Yeah. But so I will say though, Oh my gosh. Uh, when I started really wrestling with the role of Christianity in the very things that I'm writing about in this book, the role of Christianity in the construction of this system of systemic racism, in the su- supporting of police brutality, um, which I feel very, I take personally, I feel, I feel distressed about this in my body. I, every day I wake up, you know, with this burden of trying to figure out like, how can we fix this? How can I live in a safer world that the prophets of the Hebrew Bible were some of the only folks from that canon that made sense to me, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. um, not just because they do things like carry hundred pound boulders around and stuff like that to (laughs) deliver a message, but because they are connecting what it means to be, they connect justice and righteousness, mm. right? And they say that these things are inseparable, yeah. you know? Yeah. You, that's basically their message. You you religious people say that you are right with God and you do all this, this ritual stuff, you know, mm-hmm. but what God really wants is for us to treat each other well. Yeah. You know? And y'all all keep messing around and you're about to find out. You better- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And treating each other well includes <laughs> like taking care of the widow and the orphan and all that kind of stuff. Like they really did. And so, um, you know, I do think that because uh, you asked, like, what what do I think the role of that is? Mm-hmm. Right? You mm-hmm. know, yeah, and I don't mean it in a congregational way. So you were talking about kind of your yeah. like church upbringing. I think it's, you said Assemblies of God. So I'm like Southern Baptist is what I was raised. So like anything right. that is not uh, the the God inspired five point Calvinist view is definitely going to make my boots shake. Now that was the 15 year old goal 20 year ago me now i'm like heck no give me the mystical like this is freaking amazing like 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 the love that i'm turning into somehow outruns and outpaces an expanding universe and light like like that doesn't make any sense and you want to try to systematically theologize it like this what do you stop being stop being stupid and honestly you know i think I think that that is kind of the interesting thing to me is that like, I didn't experience that within the context of a congregation, mm. yeah. you know, yeah. I experienced that as someone who considered himself at the time an atheist, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So I, so when you talk about the role of that kind of person in the world, 
I first off have evolved a lot in my thinking of understanding that the idea of prophets and prophecy, first off, don't belong to any Christian tradition, mm. right? Um, they are truth tellers, right? And they have come up in all kinds of cultures and all kinds of traditions and all that kind of stuff. And we need them, <clears throat> right? We, we need those types of figures. I think that Dr. King is one of them. You know, um, Dr. King was one of those kinds of figures who, um, even though he was connected to congregational life, I, ke- I kept thinking about when I started really studying him, how like this man was standing at, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, <laughs> mm. quoting Isaiah, mm. <laughs> you know? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think a lot about like how Eugene Peterson wrote in one of his books, Run With the Horses, I think it was, uh, that that a prophet has, you know, from his understanding, you know, him being a Christian, the prophet has a, a Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, right? <laughs> and you're trying to, what I, what I, what I think about this is that basically, and I think I'm kind of paraphrasing Walter Brueggemann with this, is that really like prophets are just trying to really concretize, you know, these things that we say about God, right? Within the context of our moment in history, Mm. right? Mm. Like if, if we really are saying that the greatest command that God gives to those who are in either the, the Jewish or Christian tradition is to love your neighbor as yourself, then that command has something to do with the headline that Philando Castile bled to death in front of his girlfriend and their four-year-old daughter. Mm, in a car. Yeah. 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 By following, for those that forget that story, by literally doing what he was supposed to do and telling them that he had a concealed handgun and he was not going to get it. And anyway, mm-hmm. like literally following the training and it didn't freaking matter. And a four-year-old had to watch somebody get, um, I don't think you can say the word murdered. I think you get in trouble for that. You do um, get in trouble for that. I yeah. learned that from writing this book. I, I don't know why. Um, I have friends that are lawyers and they're like, yeah, you can't say that. Because I said it once at the bank and they're like, you're going to get fired. You can't You can't say that. I was like, the, what? Um, anyway. Yeah. Um, so that seems exhausting. So you referenced, so prophets, it feels like, a honestly, it feels like a crappy life. Like people that are telling the truth feels like an awful way to live, which sounds stupid to say out loud, but it feels like, it feels like exhausting. Um, and then, yeah. you Can know, I talk about that a little bit. Cause yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I kind of like to comment on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you shouldn't tell the truth, but like, it just seems so countercultural to the way that people live. Well, yeah. Like, well, there, there is one thing about, saying the uncomfortable truth it's saying the thing that no one that a lot of people don't want to hear and a lot of other people are afraid to say Mm. right like that is kind of the essence of it a lot and it's funny because like i just 
I kind of just think of it as like me being Jamaican. This is something that people don't know about Jamaican culture is that Jamaicans are very direct people. Mm. You know, we're just very direct people. We're very honest. Um, but there's a there's a deep prophetic tradition, I believe, you know, also in Jamaican freedom fighters and reggae musicians, which, you know, I come from. My, my father's a reggae musician and he was an anti-imperialist activist mm. in his youth. So that's a part of it. But so part of it is, you know, you're you're saying things that are hard. Right. And that people, you know, the powers that be are deeply invested in not you know, having aired out. But I think for me personally, if I can talk personally about it, I think that there's this also, it's not just like the being attuned to what's going on in the world and feeling deeply about it and, and, you know, feeling compelled to say things, even when you're kind of like, man, like, why can't I just like Mm. not, you know, like it's, it's hard to control that, not control the impulse, but to, to um, not respond. But I think Another layer that I just want to add to that is the the feeling that uh, it's such a big assignment, it feels like. And I do not feel like I am the person that should be doing that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who agree with it. I know there are a lot of people who agree with me. Like, they're like... (laughs) (laughs) I I find that throughout, you know, and the tradition I'm familiar with is, 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 is Christian, you know, the Christian Bible. I find that there's no one that God comes to in scripture when God says, Hey, you, I want you to be the spokesperson for that. And they go, okay. (laughs) Like, I, I can't think of one. Every one of them tries to get out of the job. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) I have, I have in my life, um, experienced that uh, a lot where I have just been like uh, on the one hand I don't feel like it should be I don't feel like I should be counted among people who do that work I don't feel worthy to do it you know <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> enough. yeah and yeah. then also and then also it's like man like it's I take no pleasure in doing it basically mm. yeah so hope so you talked a bit about some of the you, you listed off Martin Luther King and, and a bunch of other people as well. Um, it it feels like I heard it. So here here we go. Let me try to frame it this way. Um, and this is one of the few questions that I actually pose, though I'm going to say it in a different way or try to. So I heard um, I, I do a, a 35 40 minute drive on the way to work every day, and it said that apparently. Um, you know, ex-president Trump is apparently the front runner as it stands now for, um, which is ridiculous. Um, regardless of your politics, like it's just ridiculous. Um, that is not me either saying go Biden, not a huge fan of Biden either for those who (laughs) say, so here we go. Um, things were worse than like so many of my close friends, um, it was just, it's just worse overall. And it feels like hope, like having hope that things are going to continue to move in a trajectory of, of Shalom mm. feels like an anchor of pain, like an anchor that is just like, like I don't see it ever getting better um, regardless of which way we go. Um, mm. And I don't even know if that's a question, I guess more your thoughts on that. Like that's like after like I've read books like yours, I've read your book, I read the news and I'm like, I'm not freaking hopeful that mm. like I'm, I'm not. And 
the hope I think should come with joy. Mm-hmm. And right now it feels more like an iceberg, like just moving us towards a shipwreck. Um, yeah. Thoughts at all? Well, I mean, yeah, it is super discouraging that Trump is the front runner. Mm. It's not surprising, mm. right? Like people have been saying since he started, since he started talking about running in 2015, like we've, the word, <clears throat> the word fascism is kind of, you know, been having a moment for a while. And what I believe that we are living through what many other black thinkers throughout history have named as kind of this counter, sorry, this, this um, preventive fascist reflex that the white world has to black uprisings for racial justice. Mm. Um, I used to talk about this as like, we have this forward, one step forward, two steps back motion, you know, going on toward racial progress, but just through studying more and more and more, it seems like, no, it's actually more accurate to say that we have these anti-racist mobilizations that are countered by racist mobilizations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And we have been living through, we, we saw, we, we lived through one, which was Trump's first presidency, mm-hmm. right? Because when Barack Obama was elected as president, we all felt like that was a huge leap forward for, for uh, racial progress. And even though, you know, listen, if, 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 the, if it's a white supremacist state <laughs> and you're in charge of it, <laughs> you still got to do some white supremacy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, the way you say um, that, we still going to have to <laughs> you gotta do some white supremacy. You know what I'm saying? Like if, if you change the bus driver, the, the bus doesn't become a helicopter. You still got to, you, you got to do what the bus does, <laughs> you know? Um, so, but regardless, symbolically, mm-hmm. the, the, the election of a black president, you know, that I think that felt like a bridge. No, I, I don't think I know it felt like a bridge too far for many white people, mm-hmm. you know, and they were willing to give the presidency to anybody, <laughs> which is yeah. anyone white, you yeah. know, yeah. And, and male. <laughs> any, uh, yeah, no, male. no females allowed. Uh-uh, yeah. Definitely not. I mean, because because, again, white supremacy is also patriarchal in, inherently, you know, and I'm I'm actually quoting when I say that I'm actually quoting the secession papers, which I think were from Texas, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a part of <laughs> I think I was, I'm quoting Texas secession papers during the Civil War when I say that. So anyway, we lived through one. Right. Well, a couple of years ago, we had the largest nonviolent mobilization in recent history, the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. And we are living through more counter fascist, uh, counter uh, fascist counter revolution right now with what's going on, you know, through, throughout American society. You can see with the Supreme Court, uh, you know, the Supreme Court hearings lately and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I understand it's discouraging mm. for me. Hope is not about believing that somehow some way this will work out good <laughs> you know um i am hopeful in the sense that i understand that there is something that we can do to fight against the continuing pro- the ongoing project of colonialism 
uh, that this nation was founded under and continues to operate in uh, in in many ways. Um, there is something that we can do to counter this this growing you know uh, these this growing fascist revival. There's something we can do to confront authoritarianism or totalitarianism if it goes that way, you know. And that is nonviolent civil resistance, you mm-hmm. know, which has been effective in all of these situations throughout the world and throughout history. You know, it's not a, it's not like a guarantee. It's not like you know, you press a row of buttons and you know, you activate the the civil resistance movement and every we all live happily ever after. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what state is the button in? <laughs> North but, Dakota. <laughs> but according to a study from Erica Chenoweth that studied you know six hundred twenty seven uh, conflict situations between nineteen hundred and twenty nineteen, nonviolent civil resistance movements have been effective fifty percent of the time. Mm. Mm. Is that the same study that you wrote about where it says like only like three, four percent of people are required? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah that swings both ways, though. Right. So like people that are like, yeah, I like fascism. I kind of like I like this flex. I'm yes. yes. It goes both ways. Right. Right. Exactly. The three and a half percent rule does not you know, it's it's not it's not sentient. Right. Like it's mm. it's not like it's not only choosing the folks who are for freedom. Mm. And so this is what we have to understand is that it isn't so much that those who want the oppressive status quo just inherently hold more power. Power is not an object that can be held in that way. It's it's diffuse. It, it runs throughout the population. Um, but it is that we're being out organized. Mm. You know, the the folks who want the things that have been the way that they are, they out-organize those of us who, you know, tweet about the world that we want. Hmm. <laughs> Hands down. <laughs> They're much better at Tweets don't count? Ah, they count, but, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, but on the yeah. scale of escalating tactics to actually interrupt, you know, racist power, tweets are not the most powerful things we can do. Yeah. Yeah, maybe show up to your local school board and city council meetings and, and use your voice yeah, there. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, you know, and organize with some folks in the street and shut cities down until they meet your demands. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. just like they did in the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, and that's partly why I wrote this book is because the stakes are getting higher and higher. Mm-hmm. The, that's how I feel. You know, when I first started, I was like, what relevance is this book going to have to anyone? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, if it's about my story alone. But as I as I began to write and to share, you know, the insight that I've gleaned over the years about civil resistance, I realized, oh, my gosh, like we we totally need this information because um, the folks who are committed, who are so committed to white supremacy that as Dr. King said, they're they're not interested in democracy if it cl- if it includes racial equality. Yeah, they are going to continue to organize. And if we really pay attention to the way that they were talking about the coup on January sixth, like well, I can't remember his wife's name, Clarice Thomas's wife. Oh, um, God, I'd have to Google it. Yeah. I know you're talking about. Yeah, I can't remember. I am gonna, but, it's bothering me now. Yeah. You know, the way that they the way that they were trying to put pressure on the media <laughs> to, to Virginia. Support Virginia. Virginia. You know, yeah. 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 That 
the way that they were trying to put pressure on the media to support this effort, you know, shows that like they are thinking in an organized, systemic, institutional kind of way. They're thinking in a in a collective way about how to make this happen. Uh, we who believe in freedom have to also understand that we have to do more than just throw our anti-racist values at people who are literally, you know, organizing to suppress the vote, organizing to expand gerrymandering, organizing to pack the Supreme Court, organizing to install, reinstall their white nationalist uh, sympathizer of a president back in office. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for those that think gerrymandering isn't real anymore, you can look up, is it North Carolina that still hasn't been allowed to vote in their own primary because their Supreme Court has, you know what I'm talking about or no? I've only heard about this. Yeah, the, the Republicans tried to redraw the maps and literally everybody was like, look, if you do this, there's like, we have a conservative Supreme Court here in, in, in Carolina and this isn't going to work. Like, this is so bad. This is not going to work. Yeah. They did it anyway. It got kicked back. They did it again. They're like, we tried it. We tried to do it better. See how we move that one line? We're cool now. Still didn't work. And so now they're talking about, yeah, we, we might not be having any elections in the primary. And like the people that are running, like if you were running, Andre, you're like, I don't know what my district is. So I have these signs that I would like you to display. Um, I need you to tell me the yards that people put these signs in because I don't actually know who my constituents are, which yeah. is funny that someone's still going to get elected and I don't even know what their platform is because they have no idea the people that they supposedly represent. But anyway, that is neither here nor there. Um, well, the, whole, the whole part <laughs> that, I, that I see in this though, is that honestly, I think that people have this misconception that uh, first off that we can affect change without organizing civil resistance campaigns. And I wrote this book to say, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. You know, <laughs> uh, we actually need civil resistance campaigns. Um, but a misconception around nonviolent civil resistance is that it works in the more democratic a society is, mm. right? And actually a part of me, I know this is gonna sound crazy, but sometimes I think to myself, what if we had just let Donald Trump keep the presidency, you know, mm. like we would have fundamentally not been democratic anymore. You know, I mean, I, I argue in chapter eight that we, are I'm not sure we are right now, but yeah, we had a deep anti-democratic tradition from the start, but you know, for the sake of how we talk about things, what if we just went ahead and just let it happen? Like that might've been the wake up call that we needed to actually organize the thing because I, and I say that because I'm, I have seen in my studies, and I know people who have fought against regimes that are way less democratic than ours, mm. and they have won. Mm. So in a sense, just because things appear to be getting worse doesn't mean that our chances decrease. In fact, they might increase. They might. Mm. <laughs> you mm. know? Now, mm. I don't want for us to go there. I don't want for us to live under a totalitarian dictatorship or, you know, a completely authoritarian state or something like that. But I know that even if we do, <laughs> that the, it will still hold true that three and a half percent of the population in sustained, active, nonviolent struggle using strategic plans you know, and not not just going out and protesting and using signs and all that kind of stuff, but organizing strikes and boycotts and things like that, mm -hmm. that that force is still powerful enough to 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 change that situation. Yeah. 
Now, you don't know this, Dante, but the listeners do. But so for those that are listening now and you're like, wait, pause. So I transcribe these because I don't need anything else to do with my time. Um, and so I will link to the study right wherever you just said that word. Um, yeah. But for those that are too lazy to read um, either your book or the study itself, um, I went and I read the study and it's effectively, if I'll try to paraphrase it, um, it's effectively, you got to stop trying to bang your head against the wall, convincing someone of any end means it doesn't matter if it's racism or if it's capitalism mm-hmm. or bust or socialism or bust or pick whatever the boogeyman is that you want to fight about you know um it makes no sense to continue to argue with anyone actually most science shows the harder you argue with someone they just dig further into their biases and stop listening even harder um and you get things like uh, you know pizzagate and that kind of garbage um mm-hmm. that all you have to do is try to lean into the people that are like and you, you referenced them earlier, the people like not everybody is putting people in, in, in gas chambers. But so you just have right. to focus on those people that are like, oh, I might would say something if I knew what to say. Like you just need to convince those people and point them in the right direction and say, here, you can just walk with me and we'll do this together. Um, that's a badly way paraphrasing a long study and a long chapter. Um, I'm going to forego one of my other questions because I've already jeopardized an hour of your time. Um, and for those listening, like, the question that I say, well, I'm gonna ask the question, and you can tell people to buy the book, or you can answer the question, because I still have okay. one other question that I ask everyone that I'm excited for your answer. So you write in breaking up with white Jesus. Mm-hmm. What if Christianity is for white people? I ask myself, what if they made up this religion to serve their interests? Um, I think the answer is yes, because of mm-hmm. things like the doctrine of discovery and a bunch mm-hmm. of other garbage. Um, do you want to answer that, or we can just punt? <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's very simple that there is that there are Christianities in the world, right? Mm. There is no one Christianity in the world, and so yes, there is there is one way of answering that says, yeah, of course, yeah, the the white supremacist, you know, uh, the white supremacist horror story that that we call uh, Christianity, it, yeah, it was created for white people. Mm. Um, but there are also, you know, Christians who walked the trail of tears with indigenous people. There are Christians who uh, led abolitionist um, uprisings. There are Christians who knocked on doors, you know, and and tried to win people over to the abolitionist cause. You know, Dr. King's Christianity is not Pope uh, is not is not the, the Pope's Christianity. And so, yeah, there there definitely is and there definitely are Christianities that were invented by white people to serve the interests of white people. And luckily, they're not the only ones out there. Mm, yeah, yeah. And and uh, I'd also pivot to say the bulk of Christians don't live in America. There mm. is a massive church if you would just freaking look and read some texts that don't come from publishers in the United States. Not you specifically, Andre, but mm-hmm. to people listening. Um so you're an artist, you sing songs and write words. Um, I know the power of saying things out loud and how having to think about them changes the meaning sometimes, especially as you change into a different person. Yeah. How was reading the audiobook? Because I think it's you. How did it change your relationship to these words, like in the way that you feel about them? Yeah. Um <clears throat> You know, I can't say that it really changed the way my relationship to them, especially because a part of my writing the book 
included, like in the editing process, literally reading it mm. out loud, reading every word out loud and trying to make sure that every single sentence feels right, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but I will say that I didn't get to hear the audiobook, you know, after recording it. So <laughs> I actually like when it came out, I bought it. <laughs> Have you listened to it? Yeah, I have listened. I, I don't know if I don't remember if I listened to the whole thing, but I did listen to some of it. What's funny is your voice is like half an octave lower in that. <laughs> there's like a bit more bass in it. They they cleaned it up. There's some there's some mixing going on there. Yeah, I wonder if they if they boosted it. I mean, I also kind of had my I don't know if I can do it, but you know, like <laughs> chap, chapter one. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Like yeah. I was in some other kind of mode doing it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, like, did I read my book just like other audiobooks that I've heard? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> did I try to become someone else when I read it? But I will say that like I read the book so many times that I knew that when it was published, like I'm probably never gonna read it, right? Like, um, but I, I was curious about what the audiobook sounded like because, you know, I went into the studio for two days and I did it and I left. And so I did listen to some of it. And I will say that listening back to it, I don't know. It just, it feels like somebody else, you know, it feels like somebody <laughs> else did all of this work. Um, yeah. But I'm just happy that it's out there in the world. Yeah. So one of the questions I ask everyone, and you've already answered this multiple times, so you don't have to, um, I, I'll just say the question um, is, um, what are the things that we need to talk about at church, um, which is the book, like the things that matter um, for church? Is there anything that you did not put in this book that you're like, yeah, this, if I could write another chapter, and if there's something that we should be allowed to say in church, not as a clergy, but as a human being that stands up and is like, y'all stop it. Like this needs to happen tomorrow. Is there anything that maybe you didn't get, or the editor's like, yeah, you can't put that in there. Cause if you put that in there, we're not publishing the book. Like, is there anything that you're like, now this needs to be discussed and it needs to be discussed immediately. Well, there's nothing that they said, okay, they won't publish the book about, but there, <laughs> there was a whole section about like how there was. So one of the chapters, I think it was the black love chapter. The beginning of that originally was, I don't hate white people. <laughs> But I did for 15 minutes in a church service. Mm. And I talked about a church that I had visited where it was actually during communion. So I felt like such a terrible person because I'm sitting here and I'm just, it's, I'm the only black person in the room that I remember. And I'm just seeing all these white people going up and getting communion. And I'm just like, I'm just like, oh, I'm just so full of rage um, because I was thinking about how this is this ritual where you all assure yourselves that you are, you know, all of your sins are forgiven, all that kind of stuff. And what does it mean to be an innocent person in a society where you know that all of this violence is going on in the background? Mm. Right. Mm. Um, and I'll say that a part of my anger came from the fact that at the time, you know, I just, it just seemed so obvious that these institutions that have so many resources, including people, volunteers, leaders, money, land, buildings, you know, even even ideology, iconography, mythology, you know, symbol, you know, all this stuff um, would not lean in to what is 
like the social problem of the day and organize the, those resources to intervene, mm. you know? And I, one of my fears with this book is that people will walk away. And the only thing that they'll pull away with is, Oh, that was well-written or, um, man, Andre's good at writing or what an interesting story. Uh, because I, I could have written a book for our entertainment, mm-hmm. right? But instead, I wrote a book that is trying to mainstream some of the stuff that we talked about today, like the spectrum of support, the three and a half percent rule, the effective, the effectiveness of nonviolent civil resistance, the, the usefulness of polarization, all these things that could help us to build stronger civil resistance campaigns because the truth is right now and i talked to erica chenoweth about this the one who did that study she and uh her research partner maria j stefan and she told me that around the world right now we're losing more battles through nonviolent struggle than we're winning Mm. the reason why is not because uh of something inherent in the nonviolent approach but it's because the information about the breadth of tactics that there are to use and the strategies that are more disruptive and how to do that is it's becoming less and less known. It's becoming less and less common. And this is from my vantage point, I don't see another weapon that is as powerful and as accessible as nonviolent civil resistance to us. You know, Mm -hmm. anyone can participate in it. You don't have to have uh, a national sponsor to provide you with weapons to try to, you know, fight the U.S. Army, you know, or something like that. Like, um, you know, it, it, it creates more stable democracies in their wake. You know, like it's there's so much to it. And so the thing that I would say is that we need to be talking about in church right now. As I say this, I have an image of the church in South Africa uh, during apartheid, you know, uh, at least Desmond Tutu's, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, tra- tradition. Um, I think that we are going to need to think of like how, what, what, do, what does our life look like in, in the context of these neo-fascist, you know, counter-revolutions that are going on? Mm-hmm. And what if they succeed, you mm-hmm. know? Because I have, I have been of the opinion, and I could be wrong. I hope that I'm not. I hope that I'm wrong, you know. But I, I said, if Donald Trump wins that election in 2020, we're not having elections for a while. Mm. Yeah, I, I've had the same thought. Um, yeah. yeah, I've had the same yeah. thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, I think that churches really need to, or it would be, maybe I shouldn't say they need, but churches have an opportunity (laughs) to use those resources and to help build the skills and knowledge around nonviolent civil resistance that we need to intervene against that power that is trying to be established. Mm -hmm. That, however, will require the people that attend that church to be willing to do that work and not just fire pastors. Um, That's true. Um, they have to be willing. Um, I've, I've seen it firsthand where people are like, yeah, you, we're not doing that. I liked mm-hmm. what you said, but we're not, we're not doing mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. When you try to drape words around whatever God is for you, what is that? 
God is a mystery to me and I'm okay with that. Hmm. You know, that, that really is what I feel, you know, and I was a pastor for a while and I remember, you know, getting paid, you know, in many ways to have answers about all of the mysteries of, you know, this, this universe that we live in. And I have found so much freedom. Um, like I write about in the book about <clears throat> kind of coming out into the wide open space of, <laughs> I know that a lot of the things that I was taught is bullshit. <laughs> I don't know for sure. I don't know that I can identify every single point that is bullshit or not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And so, <laughs> and so I'm kind of fine just living, <laughs> living with this big, like, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. I'm not certain about this. I'm not certain about that. But I talk to God every day and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you actually, that's one of the few pictures that I took a picture of and then decided not to post it anywhere. Um, cause I took the picture before your book was released. I think you say in the gaslight chapter, um, I have to find the picture here. It is better to save our energy, call bullshit and just keep it moving. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so just keep it. I think that's what you say. Something like that. Um, yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah, Andre, I've enjoyed talking with you. Um, and again, I wish that I had like four hours with you because we didn't touch like, I don't know, we talked about like 36 pages of your book. Um, <laughs> of a book that's got 200 something pages in it. So thank you for your time tonight. Um, very much. So I enjoyed your help. My pleasure. My pleasure. No, we won't stop because we're upset. And it won't stop because of our fear No, it won't stop until we repent of All the black bodies broken round here She was alive for just a few days Now, I haven't added it up, but there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts on the internet, and I am humbled that you continue to download this one. If this is your first time here, please know that there are transcripts of these shows. Not always in real time, but I do my best. And if you go back in the logs, you can find transcripts for pretty much any episode that you'd like. The show is recorded and edited by me, but it is produced by the patron supporters of the show. That is one of the best, if not the best way that you can support the show. If you get anything at all out of these episodes, if you think on them or if you, you know, you're out and about and you tell your friends about it, or hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, boss, pastor, here's what I heard. What are your thoughts on that? If this is helping you in any way, and it is helping me, consider supporting the show in that manner. It is extremely inexpensive, but collectively, it is so very much helpful. Now for you, I pray that you are blessed, and you know that you're cherished and beloved. We'll talk soon. <laughs>